It's such a blessing to be with everyone this morning. There are several in our midst who have been sick for some time or struggling with more intense and serious illnesses, and they're here and with us, and it's such a blessing uh, to see them. we got a lot to be thankful for today. I want to just express again my uh, great appreciation for the men that were involved in our first worship service. That was very encouraging to me. And I thought that they did an excellent job, especially those who put together their talks. They did an excellent job in thinking about the songs and to give us a prepared heart to sing those songs. And I think that God was pleased. I think we can have confidence in that as we approach Him by faith, having been cleansed by His Son's blood. And we certainly are blessed to be His children. And to do, again, this hour as we did in the first hour in approaching His throne. And I'm thankful for your presence. Uh, There are several visitors in our midst this morning as well. We want you to know that you are certainly an encouragement to us. You're our honored guests, and we would love to see you back at any other opportunity that you might have. And as you travel back home or wherever you're going, we'll be praying for your safety as you reach your destination. The Bible consistently gives the emphasis on the heart or the inner man. And that's extremely important for us to remember. The inner man is of utmost importance. But I think that there's a danger in taking one of two extremes with this. What we most commonly see in the world is individuals saying, yes, I'm doing X, Y, Z. I'm acting in this way. I'm living this kind of life. But God knows my heart, and that's all that matters. And so it's this idea that because the Bible emphasizes the inward man, the heart of the matter, that means I am free from any kind of judgment, exempt from any kind of consequences of my outward actions, that God doesn't really care about what we're doing and how we're doing it, whether that be in my personal life and moral considerations or in matters pertaining to the church and the pattern that we see and the work and worship and organization of the Lord's body. He just cares about the heart, so we don't need to worry about any of that kind of technical. Sometimes they differentiate it from the grace and doctrine. It's the doctrinal things, and they change what the Bible says about that and make a distinction between gospel and doctrine. That's one extreme. Obviously, I think we can agree here for the most part this morning that that is an extreme and it's false. But I think that when we, we consider that extreme, what we're faced with is the temptation to go to the opposite extreme. We see that too much as well, where now we are focusing only on outward things. And if you're simply going through the motions, you're going to be right with God. We, we've got everything right. We do this right. We do that right. And they're doing this wrong and we can prove it. We can demonstrate it because I'm a part of a sound church. I'm a part of the church of Christ that was established on Pentecost. I'm worshiping in the right way. I am and living in the right way in regard to those outward things on Sundays and when we come together for midweek Bible study on Wednesdays or what have you. All these things that we can talk about and enumerate throughout the pages of the New Testament. That means that I'm right and that's all that matters. Well, the Pharisees did a lot of things right. Now they added to a lot of the Word of God, and certainly got out of their place. Their problem wasn't that they weren't doing things right. 
Like I said, they were adding to it, but their heart was far from God. They worshipped in vain, partly because they taught as doctrines the commandments of men, but also because the things they were doing right were without sincerity. Their inner man was not involved. Those are two extremes. And we might be tempted to say, well, the, the way we need to be is a, a happy middle ground balance between those two things. And I understand that. For example, in John 4, God tells us, Jesus tells us, that we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we talk about spirit and sincerity. We talk about truth, having the right form, having the Scripture, the pattern of sound words. And, and the balance is right there in between. You've got to have them both. Well, really, the truth is what we need to have. And it's not a balance of, of you've got too much spirit, so you take away from that because you need some truth. Or you've got too much truth, you take away from that, you need some spirit. You're only thinking about your inward man. You need to start thinking about some of your outward practices. You're too much focused on your outward practices. You need to think about your heart a little and, and balances there. I think the truth is something entirely different from either of those two extremes. The truth involves 100% of our inward man, which will translate into 100% of outward dedication and focus, a, a reflection of our inward heart, a manifestation of our change. So yeah, the emphasis in the Bible is on the inward man. Time and time again, we see that. But it doesn't negate the importance and necessity of the outward conformity to truth, of proper practice and consistency of our lives lived before God. It shows, though, the proper order of things. For example, in Matthew 23, when Jesus is pronouncing woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, you might remember in verse 25 of Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside may be clean also. And so it's not negating either side of it. In fact, in that very passage, he talked about how they tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and they forsake the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. He said, you should have done these and not left the others undone. He's not saying, listen, you've got it completely wrong and you need to just trash everything. He's saying you've got to have your inward man be zealous and sincerely conforming to the Spirit of God and to love Him with your whole heart, soul, and mind. And what that will do is it will translate into your life lived in service to God. But here's, here's the thing. I think that we'll fool ourselves if we think that as long as we are at the right church, we're worshiping in the right way, we're, we're acting in the right way in regard to that form, we have the right work, worship and organization of the church, and I'm participating in the worship, I'm participating in the church, but, but I'm missing something that if I guess continue to play Christianity, then the rest will follow. If I persist in it, it'll eventually lead to the full inward change of the heart. That's just another way of saying fake it till you make it. I think we fool ourselves if we think that we can do that. I'm going to, to do X, Y, Z just because I heard it in the sermon this morning. And that's the only reason is because it was said. 
I'm going to, to do it this way because I've been told that's the exact pattern of the church. And if I do that, I'm going to be right with God. I'm going to be safe. But there's something missing. And, and we investigate ourselves. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll be able to see if that something is indeed missing. My heart isn't truly invested in this. I'm, I'm not truly loving God in these actions and activities. They're just kind of empty. But as long as I keep doing it, then the rest is going to change. But all that accomplishes, I think, is a cold and inconsistent life of merely resembling the surface of Christianity. It will be completely heartless. And because it's heartless, it doesn't come from a sincere devotion and love for God, then it's going to be inconsistent. We're not going to be very consistent with our actions. It makes true discipleship, discipleship from the heart, it makes it hard, if not just impossible. But when our heart undergoes a sincere, full surrender and change and transformation, when our inward man is truly buying into the gospel of Christ and allowing our inward man to be changed completely, then the proper actions will follow. We clean the inside of the dish, Jesus says, that the outside may be clean as well. And when we do that, we will realize just how meaningless and purposeless and empty our worship was, our activity was, the things that we were doing, so to speak, in the name of Christ, just how void they really were. When we finally get to the point of fully surrendering our heart to God, fully changing ourselves, we must not put the cart before the horse, but we must ensure that our heart is truly right with God, and then He's going to be able to shape us into the true image of His Son, which will not just be a shell of Christ, but Christ will truly be living in us. We need to make sure our heart is right with God. I appreciate so much, Colby, leading that song for us and preparing our minds for this discussion. I want us to be impressed, firstly, with the position of the heart as is enumerated throughout the Bible. We're very familiar with Proverbs chapter 4 and in verse 23 where wisdom tells us, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. What is probably more a paraphrase than a translation is also helpful to me, I think. One says, guard your heart above all else, for it discerns the course of your life. You keep your heart, you cultivate your heart into what God is seeking to make it out to be. And you do that because that's going to determine how you use your life. That's going to determine what you do each and every day. And so all of that focus, as we should have the focus on the pattern of sound words and whether we're doing things right or whether we're wrong and we need to change them and we're being very detailed and specific and we are, we are rightly dividing the word of truth to be approved of God, all of that is extremely important, but it's going to have meaning and depth and truth and actually purpose and substance when we have kept our heart. That's where it's going to come from. If I'm, if I'm keeping my heart and I'm dedicating and devoting my heart to God, it's, it's a true sincerity of my inward man and not just some outward form, then the outward is going to come, but it's going to come with meaning. It's going to actually mean something. Our heart must be right with God. God chose Abraham and called him to come out of that Ur of the Chaldeans to follow him by faith. And he would make a great nation 
from his seat. That happened. And people that were born a Jew were blessed just by being born a Jew. In Romans 3, he says, Much in every way is this an advantage to you, chiefly because to you was committed the oracles of God. They had the written revelation of God's will. It was a blessing to be a Jew. But here's the problem. The reason they departed from God and God had to discipline them by leading them into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity was because they were just doing outward things and were not truly devoted to God, which led to their inconsistency and their ice-cold worship before God. And that was not pleasing to God. He wanted a people that were truly devoted to Him in His heart. And so it's no wonder in prophecy that when he speaks about the restoration of his people, the reformation of his people, true Israel, spiritual, eternal Israel, he speaks about a heart change. Notice in Ezekiel 18 and verse 31, he says, Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? In Ezekiel 36, he follows that up with their responsibility that God is going to aid them in this. He says, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. We can parallel this passage with the prophecy that Jeremiah utters in Jeremiah 31 and that the Hebrew writer recites in Hebrews chapter 8 as it pertains to the change of covenant. And I think that we can understand why their problem was a heart problem. It wasn't a law problem that they, they, they couldn't have possibly kept the law, even if they tried to. It was that their heart was far from God, which led to their departure from His ways, which led to their sin and their need for a Savior. Notice in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I think that the next verse is kind of a commentary on the thrust of importance of that concept of writing it on their hearts. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them. To the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Among many differences, there is a key fundamental difference between this new covenant and those who are a part of it and the old covenant and those who are a part of it. And the key is this free will entrance into it by the knowledge that God gives. Under the old covenant, an individual is born a Jew. And he has to be taught about God. He's in that covenant relationship. He is a child of God as it pertains to the flesh. But he has to be taught about God. Now, if you become a child of God now, and you are a member of the new covenant, it's because you knew who God was and is. You knew what He did for you in sending His Son. You knew the offer of forgiveness. And you, by faith, acted on it. You know God. No one has to tell you about God. Now we strengthen each other and edify one another, certainly. That's not what he's talking about here. Everyone from the least to the greatest will know me. A babe in Christ and an elder who has been serving for 30 years both know God. 
They're both members of this covenant. They have out of the heart, as Romans 6 says, obeyed that form of doctrine to which they were delivered. He says, you've got to change your heart first. There is no way that God's people could be who He calls them to be if they did not get themselves a new heart and the law actually be written on their heart. That's where John the Baptist comes in. Remember in Luke chapter 1 when his mother and father had not been able to have children and finally are given the promise of this son. The angel is telling them about him. He says in verse 17, He will also go before him, that is, capital H, it's the Messiah, it's Jesus. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Malachi 4 and verse 6 is what he quotes from. It says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. What he's doing is preparing hearts for the reception of the Messiah. And the way he's doing it is he's taking the hearts of these children who by this point, like throughout Israelite history, are cold and sincere and therefore corrupt in many different ways of heart and also of form. And he's getting them to turn back to in penitence the spirit of their fathers, the spirit of the father of faith like Abraham, the spirit of David, a man after God's own heart. He's trying to get them to wake up and realize the true spirit and heart of service to God. And when they change their heart, then that spiritual landscape is set to receive the Messiah's word. To gain entrance into His kingdom, their heart had to change. There are many scriptures that show the importance of the heart and the danger of a heart that is incomplete and not sincere and corrupt in its form. Notice in Matthew 15 and verse 11 when Jesus had had, uh, admonished the Pharisees for their tradition supplanting the commandments of God, speaking of eating with unwashed hands and how important that was to wash your hands, even though the, the, what, they were, what they were binding was a tradition. It wasn't from the old law. Notice in Matthew 15 and verse 11 what Jesus said, not what goes in the mouth defiles a man, what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. And he goes on to demonstrate this further in verse 17. Notice he says, Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and it is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. What he's saying is, Your speech reveals your heart. You might remember when Peter said, I don't know the man. The the people said, well, you're just like them. Aren't you a Galilean? Your speech betrays you. Our speech betrays ourselves. It, It shows who our heart truly is. And so when he says evil thoughts come out of the heart, murders, adulteries, fornications, what he's saying is that when you speak, you manifest where your heart truly is. So if I'm talking about planning, like the Pharisees were doing in this, of of making a tradition where I can say this gift is a gift to God and so I don't need to honor my mother and my father. I have theft in my heart and your tradition and binding it over the law of Moses is manifesting that your heart is not right. When you got a young boy or a man for that matter who is telling dirty jokes and is commenting on women as they walk by them, he is manifesting fornication or adultery in his heart. 
And all he lacks is opportunity. So you see that it starts in the heart. If, if your heart is corrupt, it will lead to corrupt action. It will lead from corrupt speech to corrupt action. Notice in Luke 6, in verse 43, along these same lines, this is what Jesus said there. A good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs or thorns, uh, do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure or store of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. And that's why I said before, early on when we started this, it's not a balance. It's the truth. It's not take a little bit of of the focus away from the heart so you can have a focus on the action. Take a little bit of the focus of the action away from that so you can have the more focus on the heart and your balance. It's the truth is what we're talking about. And so someone says, I'm doing these things, but God knows my heart doesn't realize that it's out of the store or treasure of your heart that your mouth speaks. It's When you take an action, it's because your heart is where that is. and, And it's just a fruit that is being born by your heart. You see how those two are married together. Notice in James chapter 3, in a text of the speech, he says in verse 14 concerning wisdom, If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist... Now where is it? Notice there in verse 14. Envy and self-seeking in your hearts. And where that is, in your hearts confusion and every evil thing are there. That word confusion is the Greek word of catastasia. Vine says it means in James 3.16, revolution or anarchy. Arton Gingrich says it means opposition to established authority, disorder, unruliness. What he's saying is if you have bitter zeal, it's zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. Romans chapter 10. You have self-seeking. It's not God-seeking. It's self-seeking. That's in your heart. Where that is in your heart is opposition to establish authority. You're not going to submit to your king. Not if that's where your heart is. And you notice in chapter 4, he talks about the heart again. And he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Saying, you've got to just stop what you're doing right now. Your outward actions, your hands, what you're doing with your body, the, the actual sin. You need to stop doing it. But if you want to never do it again, you've got to cleanse your heart. You see that? I'm not saying keep on doing the sinful activity until you got your heart right. You're never going to get your heart right if you keep doing the sinful activity. But as long as that lust and that desire for things of the world, for things opposed to God is in your heart, you're going to be known by that as you bear that fruit. That's how important the heart is. That's the position that the New Testament places the heart in. To the extent that even the word of life, The gospel that brings salvation is not going to be able to work if the heart isn't right. That's important. Understand that too. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be getting out of sin before I can obey the gospel, because that's what the gospel is for. But an honest and sincere heart, soil, Matthew 13, that's what's necessary for that seed to germinate. So notice in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 14 when Jesus is talking about why He speaks in parables. He says, In them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and shall not perceive. Why? I thought the gospel, the Word of God is with clarity and power. Why? 
Can't they hear and understand and see and perceive? For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And so the word of life can't even do its work and the heart of one who is dull, who doesn't want to know, who is intellectually dishonest, who has their mind made up that they love the world more than they love God. It won't work to this extent. Notice in Matthew 12, Jesus cast out a demon and it was obvious. It was, it was a miraculous thing. He healed him that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. It was undeniable. The Pharisees never even denied it, in fact. But this is what they did say. This fellow, verse 24, does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. They see a miracle that is indisputable, but their hearts are obviously not right because they attribute it to Satan. Now, Jesus goes on to show their flaw in their logic. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. Uh, if Satan casts out semen, Satan, how does his kingdom stand? He talks about how their sons cast out demons. So, so how are they doing it? Are they doing it by Beelzebub as well? He goes on down. Notice, I want you to see in verse 33 what he says. In verse 33, he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruits. Notice this. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can just imagine everyone that was around there and witnessed this. Got the point. Just look at the fruit they're bearing. How can I trust what they're saying here? They're saying, listen, don't be fooled by this man. He's doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus is saying, at the very fundamental basis of their speech is inconsistency and falsehood because you can see the fruit they're bearing. How can you, being evil, say something that is right? And so even a miracle was not able to convince them because their heart was not right with God. They didn't deny the miracle. They didn't accept its logical conclusion. That if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, he says, then the kingdom of God surely has come upon you. They didn't want it. They didn't want him to be the king. It's a heart problem. I want to tell you, you can hear the best sermon ever on any given subject. You can hear it put in an undeniable, convincing way. The best sermon you've ever heard will not convince you to change if your heart's not right. Before we talk about anything, whether it be our conduct, what we do from a day-to-day basis, to our actions and activities as a church holding fast the pattern of sound words, it doesn't matter at all and it will not work at all if your heart is not right. What I'm doing right now is in vain if you are not thinking about your heart and preparing it. It won't work. Doesn't matter how convincing someone can be. A dull heart won't even hear the truth of God. And you know, God knows your heart. In 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9, David is giving advice to his son Solomon. And he says in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all intent of the thoughts. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will cast you off forever. God knows. Countless times throughout the Gospels, we see that 
as it is attributed to the nature of Jesus. He knew the hearts of men, therefore he is God in the flesh. When he was in Jerusalem, John 2 and verse 23, at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. You know what we do every once in a while? What we're guilty of every once in a while, I'm I'm walking down the street and I see this man and I have opportunity to maybe talk about the gospel with this man. I say, he won't receive it though. I can't do that. Jesus knew his heart though. That's what he's doing at this point in his ministry. He's not committing himself to these people in Galilee, in Cana of Galilee, because he knows that they're not going to be receptive to it. They're not going to be willing to receive the true conclusion of what he's doing. He can do it. He knows your heart. He knows whether it's right with him. In Matthew 9, again, in verse 2, he healed a paralytic and said, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. They said he blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? They didn't have to even say it for him to know what they were thinking. He knows your hearts. And to this end, I think we need to be aware that not only does he know our hearts, He knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. That's important. Because you know you better than I know you. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when the Apostle Paul is speaking about plenary verbal inspiration, about the Word of God and, and the wisdom of God that he's trying to save us by, he says, What man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man who is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. I can't know your heart. And you can't know mine. I can get an idea from your actions, but even your actions may not be congruent with your heart. You may be pulling one over on me. I may see you every Sunday. I may see you do some good deeds here or there. There's something pent up inside of you. God knows. He knows me better than I know myself. And that's important because notice the example of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Notice in verse 17. As Jesus was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Sounds like a good man to me that wants something eternal. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witnesses. Uh, witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Here's this. He answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. He's not immoral. He's not been secularized. It's not like he doesn't believe in God. It's not like he believes in God, but he's not doing anything. He believes in God, and out of his conviction, he's doing what the law said. Then Jesus, looking at him, remember he knows him, loved him. That's key. He loves us. That's what he does. He loves us, and everything he says and everything he does is from that love. And he said to him, one thing you lack Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. You are moral. You are religious. You are obviously focused. Your mind is set on things above to a great degree. You're asking what you need to do to inherit eternal life, but you've got something missing in your heart. And I know it will be your complete and utter destruction if you don't figure it out. So I'll just tell you. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's the difference. Sometimes there are specific things about myself that I may not be fully aware of. And as I 
investigate and ask God for guidance, things are going to pop up and I'm going to see some things I need to see. Now there's a more general sense that I need to cultivate my heart. That man didn't. Because when Jesus said, in fact, there is something you lack, and here's what it is. His heart was not prepared to do what Jesus said. He rejected him. So we need to understand that God already knows. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And to that degree, we should be asking Him to show us everything we need to be shown. We need to be like that rich young ruler. The only difference is we need to be willing to make the change that we're asking about. In Psalm 139 and verse 23, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting The way that's going to happen is by the Word of God. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If we want to be like David, a man after God's own heart, we need to trust in God to show us exactly what we need to see and therefore exactly what we need to change. And so the question stands, is thy heart right with God? We sang about it. Is your heart right with God? Is your heart right with God? And, and He knows. Maybe you know. Maybe you don't know. And that's where the search comes in. But I want to see what that even looks like in a general sense. We're not talking about some specific sin or commandment this morning. This is preparatory. I want you to understand that. Before we go any further, if I haven't expressed it enough and been clear enough, this is a preparatory sermon. This is a sermon to hear the Word of God, to hear and decide what you're going to do from this time forward. Because there may be something that steps on your toes. There may be something that you're not doing that you need to do. There may be something you're doing that you need to stop. And it's not going to matter who says what to you and what scriptures they point out to you if your heart's not ready to receive it. And so to that end, I appreciate Brother Reed reading Joel chapter 2 and verse 12 because I think there's some key principles here. It's a psalm or, or a, a scripture about repentance He's speaking to the children of God in Judah who are unwilling to be faithful to him. And so he sends this plague of locusts on their land and it consumes all their resources and they're utterly destitute and need saving. So he says, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness And of great kindness, he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This was meant to incite repentance, but I want us to understand some of the language here. He's speaking about a contrition of heart. He doesn't want something merely outward. He doesn't want them just to rend their garments. He's not saying if you rend your garments, that's wrong. He's saying, I want more than that. I don't want some just outward show. I want your heart, as David said in Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now what's helped me in the study of Scripture is understanding as we see heart in Scripture, it means the inward man. And it's speaking about what makes up our inward man. It's speaking about our intellect and our will and our emotion. That's what makes up a man, essentially. What does he know? What is his will to do, his free will, his volition? What's he deciding to do with what he knows and do with his life? What motivates him, his emotion? 
And so when we say him say, rend your heart, not your garments, he's speaking about ripping open your heart in reaction to God's will and understanding its contrariness to the intellect of God, the will of God, and what drives God in his emotion. You've got to make sure you tear out all that is negative, all that is of yourself, all that is contrary to what you hear in the will of God so that you can make room for His will. Rend your heart, not your garments. It is a reaction to the will of God exposing a heart that is contrary to Him. Intellect that is contrary to Him. Your will that is contrary to Him. Your emotions that are contrary to Him. This is the way Paul puts it in regard to the power of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, teaching. There's the intellect, brethren. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. That is convincing of your sin, which is intended to lead me to shame. That's emotion. And it is profitable for correction and instruction in righteousness. That's the changing of the will. That's a manifestation of a learned heart. And so he's saying when you rend your heart, you rip out your will, your knowledge, what drives you, and you replace it with everything that God wants of you. You notice that in Joel chapter 2. He said, turn to me with your whole heart. And then he said, rend your heart. And then he says, return to the Lord your God. He says, return, rend, and return. If you're to return to God, you're to rip open your heart, empty it of all of your will and all of your desires and all of yourself so that you can return to Him and let Him fill you. That's the whole point of Ezekiel 36. I'll get you a new heart so I can put my spirit within you because as long as you've got this hard heart, I can't do anything with you. Have you ripped your heart open before God and poured out all of yourself and replaced it with Him? Albert Barnes in his commentary on Joel said, Since the rending of the garments was the outward sign of a very vehement grief, it was no commonplace superficial sorrow which the prophet enjoined, but one which should pierce and rend the inmost soul and empty it of its sins and its love for sin. Such a penitent rends and rips up by narrow searches the recesses of his heart, to discover the abominations thereof and pours out before God the diseased and perilous stuff pent up and festering there, expels the evil thoughts lodged in it and opens it in all things to the reception of divine grace. This rending then is the casting away of the sins and passions. Have you truly let go of everything? Are you still trying to maintain control? Is your heart right with God? This is the way the New Testament puts it. Galatians 2 and in verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He revisits crucifixion in chapter 6 of Galatians and in verse 14 and 15. Notice there, Galatians 6, 14, God forbid, he says that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And so this crucifixion is this ripping open of the heart, nailing everything of self to the cross with Christ and freeing yourself for Christ's power and control. 
And it's not taking free will away. It's surrendering my will out of my free will to be the will of God. Christ lives in me. I'm a new creation. You see that there? He rent His heart. When we were crucified with Christ, we should have rent our heart. You know, another thing in the New Testament that is revisiting some of the Old Testament concepts reflects the same concept in Acts 7.51 with the circumcision of the heart. We'll see a few passages. But you remember Stephen preaching a sermon. And again, I say to you, there is no sermon that is powerful enough to change or lead you to change and obey it if your heart's not right. That's what we see in Acts 7. Stephen showed that God's people had been rejecting His messengers throughout history. You're no different. You rejected the Christ whom God sent. And he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. They're uncircumcised in their heart. What did that lead to? You always resist the Holy Spirit. You are uncircumcised in your heart. You cannot receive the will of God. Romans chapter 2, though, in verses 25 through 29 speaks about how true circumcision is that of the inward man. And if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? He speaks about a true Jew being one who is not outwardly, but inwardly, a circumcision that is of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is from men, but not from God. Uncircumcised hearts cannot receive the truth. Circumcised hearts can receive the truth. And I want us to notice in Colossians 2 and verse 11 what that circumcision is amounted to. In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Same thing Joel was talking about. In literal circumcision, something is cut off and cast away. It's not yours anymore. You don't live with it anymore. And spiritual circumcision of the heart, the man of sins has been cut off and cast away so that Christ can live in me. Have you rent your heart? Have you truly emptied yourself from everything? Have thine affections been nailed to the cross? Dost thou count all things for Jesus but loss? Hast thou dominion or self and or sin over all evil without and within? Is your heart right with God? It's the point Jesus was making with the rich young ruler. Oh, you're doing a lot right. I don't have your whole heart. Your heart's not right. You can't go further. We'll quickly go through this last one. Does he have your whole heart? Again, it's the same concept. In 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, we're given encouragement to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. In James chapter 2, he gives the illustration of looking into God's Word as looking in the mirror. And if you see something wrong, don't go away and be a forgetful here, but be a doer of the work. But I'm not talking about examining yourself and reflecting on yourself to see if you're simply aware of God's existence and believe it. It's not what we're talking about. That's important. I'm not erasing that. But we're talking about something deeper and sometimes a lot more difficult as a challenge. It's not about whether you believe here that His Word is inspired. I take that for granted with people here today. It's not about really investigating yourself to see if you believe that the church established on Pentecost in Acts 2 is the one and only true church, or that you know the true pattern of salvation, or that you knew the work and worship and organization of the church, or you attend faithfully, or generally you abstain from worldliness. That's not what we're talking about. You here this morning, that can be said of everyone here this morning for the most part, most of us. That's why we're here. It's more fundamental than that. Does he have your whole heart? In James chapter 4 and in verse 5, as Brett preached on recently, it says, Do you think the Scripture says in vain the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? I don't just want most of you. 
I don't want 99% of Jeremiah. I want that 1% too. I want your entirety. I want your whole heart. That's what Scripture reflects many times. Notice in 1 Corinthians 6 when he's talking about fornication and why we should flee it and how it utterly contradicts the very purpose of our body. I want us to notice some of the language there. In 1 Corinthians 6 and in verse 13, he says, The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In verse 17 then, he speaks about how the one who is joined to a harlot becomes one flesh with her. But then he says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And he demonstrates that in verse 19 saying, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? You are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When we're speaking about God having our whole heart, we're talking about truly being of one heart with him of one spirit with Him. That does not mean, brethren, that I'm doing most things right, but there's one little thing that in my mind it's pretty petty and I'm not going to worry about making that change. Maybe it's the way you talk. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in. Maybe it's the place that you work. Maybe it's a form of entertainment that you continue to consume and you're just, you don't see how that's a big deal even though you're filling your heart with that kind of rottenness. Maybe it's the way you dress. Maybe it's like we studied a couple weeks ago, an activity like dancing that you had never even thought of being evil. God doesn't just want most of you. He wants you to be with one spirit with Him. He wants you to understand and comprehend why those things are wrong, why they're an abomination to Him, and He wants you to feel the same way. And when He tells you to do something... You do it as well. Maybe you're not visiting your brethren enough who are in need. Maybe you've had countless opportunities to teach the gospel to the lost, but you just don't think it's, it's as important as other things that you're doing, that you do in the name of Christ, but that's not as important. And so a, a rent heart, giving our whole heart to God, being of one spirit with Him, is going to be investing your entire self to these things. And this was Jesus' will as He prayed to the Father in John 17, 20. I don't pray for these, the apostles alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. So not just that we're one together, but our oneness is a product of our being one with God. You know, Jesus and Jehovah and the Holy Spirit, they don't contradict each other. We talk about that all the time. They're unified. They're one God in three persons, and they have the same will. They have the same desire. They have the same motivations. They never contradict each other. Can that be said of me with God? That's what he's saying. Just like the God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one together, he wants us to be one together. And a heart like that, that is fully and entirely poured out and given to God, is going to be able to do things like Abel, who offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Or Enoch, that is simply described as walking with God. Or Noah, who built an ark for the coming of a universal flood, such that has never been seen or heard of. Or Abraham, leaving his homeland. Or Abraham offering up Isaac, or Moses' parents who hid him and weren't afraid of Pharaoh, or Moses himself who chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. All that in Hebrews 11 doesn't happen without a heart like this that is fully given over. The song says, Are all thy powers under Jesus' control? All 
thy powers under Jesus' control? Does He each moment abide in thy soul? Is thy heart right with God? The Israelites were told, and Jesus reiterated on a number of occasions, that we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. All leaves nothing left. And it's that kind of a heart who is going to constantly be thinking about God. In Psalm 1 and verse 2, the blessed man is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. In Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That kind of heart is what translates into Christ being a part of everything. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Remember in Colossians 1.27, the Apostle Paul spoke about the hope in a Christian. He says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ dwelling in you, Galatians 2 and verse 20. That's your hope of glory. It's, it's, I don't know where Jeremiah begins and Christ ends. I, I don't know the difference. I'm that dedicated and devoted. And so it should be for every Christian. Is your heart there? Colossians 3 and verse 3, he says, You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is a heart that is truly and entirely given to him is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ who is our life, when He appears, you will appear with Him in glory. Can it be said of you this morning that Christ is your life? I know that it's good you're here. I know you know the difference between truth and some error. I know that you can probably give a pretty detailed explanation of why we don't have instruments of music in our worship this morning. Or maybe why we met on Sunday instead of Saturday. Or maybe why we took of the Lord's Supper and we'll do it again the same time next week. Maybe you can tell me why you are going to stay with your spouse for the rest of your life and you're not even going to entertain the thought of leaving that marriage and going with someone else. All that's great and perfect and extremely important. But is that how you feel sincerely in your heart about everything? Is there something reserved for yourself or have you given your entirety to Jesus? That's where the rubber meets the road. That's what discipleship is. And there's not a thing that anyone can ever tell you that's going to be effective to its greatest end if your heart is not like that. If you've not emptied everything and allowed God fully to take over by the will He's revealed in His New Testament. We want to give you that opportunity this afternoon. It starts by being fully convinced in the reality of your sin, the need for a Savior, the grace of God in giving Jesus to die for your sins, that without the shedding of blood there is no atonement, and realizing that it is in the waters of baptism, Romans 6, that you are baptized into the benefits of that death, the blood that was shed. Then you can be a new life, dedicated, transformed daily into the image of His Son. It starts here. We want to offer you that invitation. If there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, come forward while we stand and sing.